0: Just a heads up, the subject matter in this episode may not be suitable for young listeners. Just be advised, use your discretion accordingly.
1: As a woman, I think porn is a disgrace. And I used to watch a lot of porn, to be honest.
0: This is Billie Eilish, one of the most popular singer-songwriters in America today. In a radio interview in 2021... When she was 20 years old,
1: I started watching porn when I was like 11. I didn't understand why it was a, a bad thing. I thought, I thought that's how you learned how to have sex. And I used to be like the person that would like talk about porn all the time. I'd be like, oh, it's so stupid that anybody would think that porn is bad or, you know, I think it's so cool and it's great and it's, and it's, what empowering. kind of porn were you watching?
0: No matter the social issue, whether it's gay marriage, transgender theories, abortion rights, you'll find Billie Eilish on the far left. But not this one.
1: I was an advocate, and I, you know, thought I was one of the guys, and would talk about it, and think I was really cool for, for, for not having a problem with it, and not seeing why it was bad. And you know, I, uh, I think it really destroyed my brain, and um, I feel incredibly devastated that I was exposed to so much porn.
0: Comments like this point to a growing realization across many segments of American society that pornography is a scourge, that it leads to the objectification of men and women alike, that it corrupts the mind, shrivels the soul, and that its pervasiveness is a plague. One organization goes so far as to label it the new drug.
2: Today's rising generation is facing the issue of pornography at a
3: level our world has never seen. In 2015, 4.3 billion hours of pornography were watched on a single website. That's half a million years. What are the consequences of 4 billion hours when pornography has been shown to increase marital infidelity by over 300%? What are the consequences when 88% of the scenes depict aggression or violence? What are the consequences when the porn industry has now been linked to abuse on set, child exploitation, and even human trafficking? When we discover that products are tied to abusive things, like child labor, we're willing to change what we buy. Isn't it time we had the same conversation
2: about pornography's human impact?
0: A few years ago, Time magazine devoted a cover story to pornography and the problems it causes for young people, the sexual frustrations and impotence that followed from excessive use. More and more commentators speak openly about the social and mental health consequences of porn, the degrading nature of warped expectations, the ever more transgressive practices, the normalization of violence, and the dark underside of human trafficking. But most of the time, they stop short of pronouncing moral judgment about pornography in general. Unless we're talking about child pornography, which remains illegal, thankfully, you're unlikely to get anything more than a moral question mark. The conversation bends toward mental health or societal consequences. And sure, that's a start, but it only gets us so far. As people who follow Jesus Christ, we go further. We don't oppose pornography merely because of bad outcomes. We oppose pornography because we know, deep down, our hearts are to be pointed in a different direction. We've been given a strikingly otherworldly ethic of morality, a vision of blazing purity to set before the world, the kind of glory that makes pornography look like a grimy dumpster compared to the pristine glory of knowing God. But we fool ourselves if we think porn is something only out there in the world. The pervasiveness of pornography affects the church as well. Young people and old, men and women. I call it the secret catastrophe because it's everywhere, yet often in the shadows. And the underlying guilt and shame lead Christians to hide in the darkness rather than step into the light. The result, we normalize hypocrisy We diminish the seriousness of sin. We settle for surrender. There is no way to rebuild the witness of the church in the next generation, unless we address this secret catastrophe, the challenge that pornography poses to hearts and minds inside the church, not just out in the world. I'm Trevin Wax, Vice President of Research and Resource Development at the North American Mission Board. You're listening to Reconstructing Faith. In this series, we address different challenges facing the church today, offering perspective from church history and the global church, so that we meet this moment with a posture of faith, not fear, through the power of the Spirit. I hope you'll join me on this journey and consider what you can contribute to the task of restoring and rebuilding, working toward a healthier body of Christ in the days ahead. This is the fourth episode of season two, The Secret Catastrophe. It wasn't that long ago, our society was wildly nonchalant about pornography. It was fodder for comedy on sitcoms, like the 1998 episode of Friends, when Chandler and Joey wind up with a glitch in the TV that gives them a pornographic channel at no cost.
1: Come on, do we really have to watch this while we eat? No no, 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 no!
2: We don't know what could make this go away. Yeah, so no one touches the remote. And no one touches the TV. And no one touches the air around the TV. Imagine a
0: protective porn bubble, if you will.
1: Well, I'm at least going to mute it. No, no, no! no, 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 no.
0: Today, cultural critics and social commentators, even on the left, take issue with the attitude that just shrugs at porn. On occasion, you see a more serious approach creep into popular shows and entertainment. For example, in 2017, the third season of the British drama Broadchurch focused on a case of sexual assault. A theme running through that season was the negative impact of pornography. Consider the contrast between the Friends episode, Laughing at Porn, and how Broadchurch's main character, Ellie, confronts her teenage son.
4: Mm-hmm. Was that your phone? I didn't give you your phone back. Give it here now, I'm So you not only stole back your phone, you kept what I deleted and you added even more.
5: Do you know how much that costs?
4: Yeah, I do. And we can't afford to buy new ones. So from now on, there is no smartphone and you use the computer at the library.
0: The cultural winds may be turning. Depending on the circles you're in, it may be more controversial today for someone to promote pornography than to oppose it. The conservative political commentator Dennis Prager, a practicing Jew, came under fire recently for comments at a roundtable with Jordan Peterson on the book of Exodus.
6: As I said yesterday, I, I thank God for America's Christians. And uh, Maimonides said if it weren't for Christians, the world wouldn't know about the Torah. So uh, <laughs> I'm a big Christian fan. But obviously Christianity and Judaism are not identical religions. Uh, and, and we have no equivalent that if you look upon another woman with lust, it's as if you have committed adultery with your heart. There's only one way to commit adultery in Judaism, and it's with a different organ. And I'm not being cute. I'm, I'm being very realistic. Uh, Looking with lust is not a sin in Judaism.
2: What's the but stance on porno- what's the stance on pornography?
6: So pornography. When I'm asked this question, you, just to you, put you on the spot, you, you did by the way. indeed. <laughs> uh, okay, so my my answer when it's raised on my radio show, I have a male female hour, and I'm very open about sexual subjects. I always ask if a wife calls me and says, my husband looks at pornography, I, I, I found on his computer. I have one question. How is your int- life of intimacy with your husband? Is it good? In other words, is the pornography in lieu of you or in addition to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know this is not a religious answer, mm-hmm. and I, I'm not even giving a religious answer, I'm giving mm-hmm. what I think is a moral and realistic answer. Men want variety. And if pornography is a substitute for one's wife, it's awful. If it's a substitute for adultery, it's not awful.
0: There was swift backlash to Dennis Prager's comments from across the spectrum, even from many of his fans who agree with his political views. Attitudes are changing. Even people who feel the compulsion to view pornography often speak of it in negative terms. They see it less like a harmless activity and more as a beast that bays for their blood. Perhaps most surprising is the shift among certain feminist writers. Louise Perry's provocative book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, begins with the sad story of Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy, and Marilyn Monroe. She describes the chilling situation on the Reenchanting podcast.
4: The example that I use in the first chapter of the book is Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner. Um, Partly because it's a lovely, neat story because they were both born in the same year, and you know, and they spent uh, their lives in in LA mo- most of it, um, and they're also buried in the same place because Hefner, um, in his final act of creepiness, beats the crypt next to. I didn't know that, and for some reason, yeah. when I read that, I found that so actually, I don't know why, but I found that so creepy. It's like that really hit me on like a, yeah on a level that I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting, <laughs> particularly given because Hefner they never actually met in life that he had the the success of Playboy was partly the result of the fact that he had um, published news of Marilyn without her consent in the first issue um, that he bought from the photographer but she didn't see a penny you know and um, she was apparently really distressed at this but okay you know Um, this, this is the thing though, you know, Hefner was one of these figures who was able to have an absolute ball during the sexual revolution, because basically all the limits historically placed on his behaviour, like the expectation of monogamy or whatever, fell away. And the pill arrived on the scene and allowed him to more easily persuade women into bed who might otherwise have been reluctant. And um, yeah, he was, um, he was, he has, he's a sort of totemic figure in terms of, you know, the great beneficiary of the sexual revolution. Unlike, I would say, Marilyn Monroe, who actually lived a fairly miserable life.
0: Washington Post columnist Christine Emba, an author of Rethinking Sex, is another example of this change in attitudes.
5: I feel like much mainstream porn is really centered around this this ideal of objectification Mm -hmm. in that, you know, it's shot for the purposes of consumption. Um, Mm -hmm. It's shot as, you know, two people doing a thing. They're not necessarily personalities. You're not asked to feel for them. And that can train us, especially because, you know, sex carves such deep channels in the mind, basically, right. um, to to learn to desire certain things, whether it's, you know, fetishes that are harmful around gender, sex, age, etc., cetera, or, you know, just certain states of mind, whether it's a fantasy of availability that, you know doesn't exist in real life, or the expectation that you have so much choice and can do whatever you want that's that's not actually true. And as those things that we've trained ourselves into sort of bleed out into our real life, because there's so much evidence at this point that, you know, the things that we watch can and do in fact have an impact on our psyche, um, this can become bad not just for us, but for society as
0: a whole. As Christians, We don't merely think pornography is harmful or bad for society. We believe it is sin. Pornography keeps us from seeing God. It makes us lose sight of the beauty and majesty of Jesus Christ. It shackles us to shame that hinders our mission as Jesus' disciples. The response of the church is often to say, keep away. It's like the skull and crossbones you see on bottles of poison, a warning about the damage that can be done by whatever is inside. The label says, death is in this bottle. The Bible takes this approach in several places. In Matthew five, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is zealous about purity, not because he hates us or wants to suppress whatever might be fun. It's because he's radically for us. Commenting on this passage several hundred years later, the great preacher John Chrysostom warned about the addictive nature of lust, comparing it to a wild beast. Who intrudes upon one's thoughts.
2: For when you look once, twice, or three times, you will perhaps have the power to refrain. But if you make this your habitual practice, kindling the furnace within you, you will assuredly be overcome.
0: In 1 Thessalonians 4, the apostle Paul says, this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. Likewise in Colossians 3, we're told to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature—sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. No one who takes the Bible seriously will arrive at the conclusion that pornography is acceptable for Christians—something to shrug your shoulders at. Boys will be boys is not a phrase found in Scripture. The biblical command is to act like men and flee youthful lusts. The world sees porn as something to be managed. The Bible sees it as something to be killed. But how to go about slaying this dragon? What does this form of sin and temptation tell us about ourselves? What are the best ways of fighting and overcoming this sin? More on that in a moment. My friend Richard is not like other people.
2: He's a man with terminal cancer who decided to plant a church. They initially told me two years. And
3: I was terrified. I still am. But our circumstance doesn't change our
2: calling.
0: From Send Network, this is Terminal, the dying church planter. Coming soon to Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I looked at a lot of pornography in college, and uh, I would never say I was addicted, but it was a, it was a pretty big issue um, and was able to, to do some work on that, went through counseling myself.
0: This is Austin Connor, a pastor and a provisionally licensed professional counselor at The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri.
3: But then I also started trying to work with college students and say, hey, let's try to help here. So I started leading kind of structured groups in college for probably a couple of years. And it was groups of five guys, 10 guys, me and my boss and coworker just started leading, we call them integrity groups, and really got into you know some of this and, and learned a lot. So that's kind of where just my heart has developed, learning a lot about human condition and how people are wired and what works and taking some of those big, broad lessons I've learned and really applying them to this integrity group has just been awesome.
0: It's interesting that you use the term integrity group rather than accountability group, because accountability group has been, I'd say in the last 20 to 30 years, has kind of been dominant in in evangelical circles. But you don't really put forward an exclusively accountability-based group approach to dealing with this issue. And I think it even comes out in the way that you talk about it by calling it an integrity group. What's the difference and why does it matter?
3: Yeah, that's a great, great question. I just want to be on record. I'm pro accountability. (laughs) When I think about these groups, there's kind of three different types. You know, there's cop accountability groups, which are groups that, again, all of these are well intentioned, but the impact is, hey, just stop doing this, you know, and you approach it and there's a leader and they're the cop and sorry, do whatever. The second one is there's coach accountability groups. Maybe these feel a little, Softer, a little like, all right, I want to come and this, this, like rah rah, let's do it together. Those are good. What I think both, whether intentionally or not, fail to look at is what's really going on underneath the surface. And again, we have to focus on behavior. I'm not going to say we don't, but what's the main focus? I think the cop accountability group and the coach accountability group fail to miss that. And the third type, you know, we, we you think about a heart accountability group, which is. Yeah, we're really getting down to some of the issues of, okay, what, yes, what happened in the present, but why then? Like, what was going on in your life? What were some of the feelings that were brought up? What was a time that you felt that in the past? And really getting di- a little bit deeper into the surface. And so again, uh, this is just a me thing. I say integrity groups, I think it might capture just kind of what we're trying to get to a little bit more rather than uh, accountability groups.
0: Well, integrity goes further than accountability in terms of a positive vision for what you want, you know, the men in this group to be, right? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, to be a man of integrity means it's less about just someone kind of holding your feet to the fire accountable. It's also, how can we build each other up as men to be honest, to keep our vows? I like that approach.
3: Yeah. And there's, you know, there's two things. I've said this in different ways, but something about, I at the beginning of these, I say, guys, if, if we leave here not loving Jesus more, then we failed. Like we can do all the right things. We can go 80 days without looking at anything, blah, blah, blah. But if we don't love Jesus more, it's pointless. And so let's make that the goal. Let's make that the vision. That verse in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, you know, it says the kindness of God leads to repentance. I start to change and want to fight because I actually want to not because I feel like somebody else is telling me that I have to. And it's, you know, kind of the, where's the locus of responsibility? Is it within me? It's self-directed in a healthy way, or is it from somebody out there? I'm doing this because, you know, I don't want to disappoint my leader or I don't want to disappoint my wife. Those are all fine and good, but foundationally, man, what's the reason why we're wanting to change it? I, I think we want to do it because we, the godly you know, spirit-led part of ourselves, this is who and this is the person, the part of me that wants to make the change.
0: What percentage of people in the church do you think have an ongoing struggle or frequent lapses with pornography?
3: I'd say as of three or four years ago, Christian men in particular viewing porn, it, it essentially mirrors the national average. Specifically, 97% say they view porn at some point in their life. 64% have viewed porn at least once a month. 37% watch porn several times a week. That's that's four out of 10 people in the church, men. 65% of men watched porn at work in the last three months. So all that to say, in my own you know pastoral and counseling experience, I am more surprised when somebody doesn't struggle with porn. And to be honest, maybe this is a skeptical part of me. I kind of don't believe them if they say they don't. I'm like, okay, that's fine. So all that to say, you're right. This is just it's ubiquitous and pervasive.
0: Was it you who was telling me that there was like some study where they were trying to like compare people that had been exposed to porn or, or had ongoing issues with porn and then people that didn't. And I can't remember what that study was, but I, I yeah, think you there, told me There's, about that on the there's,
3: phone. there's no, so when you do research, you have to have a control group of people, you know, who don't experience what you're trying to study when they were trying to study pornography. They literally could not find a control group of people who haven't been exposed to pornography at some point which is just okay. one part of me is not surprised. Another part of me is like, my gosh, that's that's
7: sad. It's more prevalent than we want to think so. It's worse than we want to believe. There's always more than what we would like to think about.
0: This is Rebecca Hanna, the executive director of Anchored Hope, a virtual counseling center, and the director of families at Redeemer Lincoln Square in New York City.
7: Oftentimes when I read those stats, it's hard to read them out loud because you just want to think it can't possibly be true. If one out of every four pastors is looking up pornography regularly, if you think about if that's the leader of our church, how does that trickle down to the actual congregation of the church? So I would venture to say that If 75% of your young people are actively viewing pornography, then if you're coming from that end of it and then you have the pastors one in four, statistics are probably off of the charts. I hate to say something that's definite because I don't know that there's a way to even qualify what those statistics are, but I would assume that 75% of your congregation has been impacted, has viewed, or is regularly viewing that. And probably 40% of that percentage is women. I do think that it is important for us to recognize that women are struggling with this and dealing with it. And oftentimes it can actually be worse because it's silent. If a guy confesses pornography use, that can be normalized. If a if a wife or a woman confesses that, then they're ostracized. And so it can bring actually more effects or more pain or a different kind of shame for a female at this point to confess that than for a male. So they're just suffering in silence. And so if we're going to speak about it, particularly from the pulpit, making sure that there is no sin that's uncommon to either men or women. So it's important for this to be a conversation for both genders.
0: I asked Rebecca to speak to what's going on in the heart when a man or woman views pornography. And she was quick to stress how the motivations can differ from person to person
7: you've heard the language the heart idolatry what are you after you and i could be actually sitting in the same way but what we're wanting from actually committing that sin are two different things so perhaps i want comfort maybe somebody else wants pleasure maybe someone else wants control and so using these things what we use them for can be entirely different even if the outside of what we're doing looks the same
0: I'd like us to dig a little deeper into this longing language that you mentioned, because I think it's really important. I mean, we've got theologians that talk about sin as the result of, you know, disordered loves and longings, longings that have been twisted. And and even you've alluded to this here, that there's usually a good and right longing, even behind some of the the more twisted forms of sin. So if we're talking about pornography as a snare, even for many Christians— You've mentioned a few of them here. You talked about pleasure. You talked about comfort. I think you mentioned control. Like, they're good longings. They're not bad longings, necessarily, that are misdirected that lead to this kind of sinful behavior.
7: Yeah, we, we all long for good things. We all long for beauty and glory. As we talked about
0: joy and beauty in God, Rebecca pointed to the famous analogy from C.S. Lewis— about the human propensity to seek satisfaction for deeper longings in the polluted wells of the world. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires
2: not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, He cannot imagine what is
7: meant by the offer of a holiday at the
2: sea. We are far too easily pleased.
7: I do think it's harder in our culture, the further along we get, to taste of his beauty because the other things are so easily accessible. And actually, seeing God honoring beauty takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work and discipline to actually get into the Bible and not to pick up your phone instead, or to go to a community and talk about who Jesus is rather than go to a movie. There's Those are things that take more work. They take more of ourselves even to, to work hard, to, to draw near to Jesus so that he might draw near to us versus picking up my phone and getting whatever I want whenever I want it. And so it is a lot more work but what we are really lacking is the knowledge that it's actually better. It's worth the hard work so that you could taste what that beauty actually is. What real beauty is. We would argue that that's real beauty and the rest of it's fake.
3: I think we need to turn up the volume.
0: This is Austin Connor again.
3: And what I mean by that is we need to continue to let others know the damaging impacts that pornography can have. And is having on people, especially those who are seeking to love Jesus, right? And there's three things that come to mind at this point uh, about the impact pornography has, and this has been confirmed and validated by solid research. But the first one is that porn literally rewires our brains. You know, it taps into our God-given neurological sexual system, right? When we watch, we become aroused and these hormones and chemicals start getting released in our brain and throughout our body and and this is an inherently good thing, but the problem is that these systems they're meant to be turned on, so to speak, and indulged in the context of a marriage between one man and one woman. You know that's God's design for marriage. But what's happening now is that it's almost like I don't know these these neurological roads are created and get wider. You know, the more we watch porn, it's easier to, to get on these roads, so to speak. So that's kind of, that's the bad news. Now, thankfully, our brains are plastic and they can adapt and change and make new roads. But all that to say, the first one is porn is rewiring our brains. The second point, you know, porn is dehumanizing people. They'll give people surveys and ask their experience. And people who are watching porn, they, they're viewing the people in the videos less as real life people and more as inanimate objects. This dynamic, it doesn't stay online. It's spilling over into real life so that you begin to see women or even men just as objects, not as people. And then that that last point about, you know, turning up the volume, what do we need to tell people about? Well, and this is, I don't know, as a guy with kids, this is the one that affects me the most. Porn is actually teaching people. Like people are thinking that pornography is legitimate and are learning to practice this in their own relationships. I think we need to turn up the volume. We need to keep sharing this with people. But then on the other hand, I think we need to turn down the volume. And what I mean is that we just need to realize, like we've been saying that pornography use is ubiquitous. It's all over the place and it is not the unforgivable sin. You know, this is not a signal that we no longer love Jesus or that we're kicked out of the club, so to speak. You know, this is a chance for us to realize that the people who are regular porn users and, and even addicted, they, they still retain dignity and value and worth. And there's hope for change for these people. You know, that I'm um, thinking, I'll speak for me when I sin or if I'm tempted, I can very quickly just believe that I myself am a sinner. Uh, I'm no good. I have no value. And that's, I would say, you know, that's a Genesis three fallen view of us, of, of people, of humanity. And instead, um, uh, what I want to try to do, and I think what helps is to go back to Genesis one and two, is that our dignity and value has been given to us by God, and pornography doesn't doesn't wipe that out. It's not the only step, but but it's a great first step to helping them, especially because we're modeling and embodying Jesus's stance and feelings toward them. so so turning down the volume,
0: I've noticed something of a shift in recent years in books in the way we talk about this and whatnot. Away from, hey, porn is sin. It's a battle. You fight this in community with accountability groups. You grow toward righteousness kind of a thing. And more toward, well, porn is an addiction and we need counseling and we need therapy. We need these different methods that we need to, because we want to grow to a place of health. Now, I want to lay out right there. I don't think that these two views are opposed to one another, yeah. Jesus I smell said, a false.
3: I smell a false dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's me too. Yeah. Me too. I mean, yeah. when
0: Jesus says "be perfect," he means that that word "perfect" there is talking about wholeness. It's talking about purity that goes beyond just sexual purity. The kind of wholeness and flourishing that we are intended to to, to have as human beings. So righteousness and wholeness, and righteousness and health, like all of that goes together. I guess what I would like to hear from you is what is the problem. If we stay exclusively in the zone of treating this in therapeutic ways as an addiction, or if we only think about it in terms of sin and willpower and software blockers and things like that, on the one side, we're not taking into consideration the ways that our brains can become enslaved, can become inclined toward enslaving vices. But on the other side, we already live in a therapeutic society. There's not a lot of room for conversations about what's morally right, wrong good evil things like that so how do we hold those two things together and what's the problem if we don't
3: i think what you're saying is there a way to integrate both and what are the consequences of keeping them separate falling into this false dichotomy you know the first thing i'm thinking about treating pornography and addiction only from a therapeutic view you know viewing it only as an addiction which i think that's where a lot of secular counseling models kind of default to only a horizontal lens there's no vertical if that's where we default to i think that it can absolve people of any sort of responsibility i think people might take that and say well this is just my addiction it's not really me you know it's not my fault that i looked at porn because i'm an addict now what i want to say is is addiction real yes of course addiction's real you know hallmarks of addiction in any area are whatever it is porn alcohol shopping is that the person continues the behavior in the face of adverse and increasingly severe consequences. The most severe forms uh, of addiction do not compromise and take away a person's agency and choice and responsibility. Now, I I think addiction, it diminishes a person's capacity to make choices, but it doesn't wipe it out. An illustration that that I found helpful is, is think about lighting up a gas grill, propane grill, right? First thing you do, you turn on the gas and you press the ignition button and whoosh you know here comes the flame and you can turn that flame up to higher and lower levels but until you turn off the gas the grill's going to remain lit and the same is true of our choice you know because we're created in God's image we've all we've all been given the capacity the ability opportunity and responsibility to make choices like that's that's never going away but i think that one of the effects of the fall and of sin is that it's negatively impacted our ability to make those choices. And so when that happened, that burner is turned down much lower. And so, so bringing this back to, to pornography addiction, if all we're doing is treating people from a therapeutic model that's diminishing or ignoring or failing to hold people accountable for their choices and actions and is not helping them grow in their God-given ability and responsibility to make changes, then I think we're missing it and we're not we're not including that vertical aspect because there are consequences to our actions to other people and to our relationship with God.
0: Another question that's kind of a follow up from that. I like what you're saying here. I'm just noticing the progression of certain books in the Christian world from the past, you know, 30 years. I can see progression in moving a little bit more away from or the emphasis is more away from sin and righteousness a little more toward health and wholeness and 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 therapeutic message. So I am concerned that we could remove agency from people where it would they would just say, Well, look, I'm broken by my past. And I guess this is just my brain chemistry now, right? And there's and there's a, a lack of fervency in following the scriptural commands to like to flee from this, to like do whatever yeah. it takes, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know if this is the point you're getting, but the other thing that came up too is I've seen a tendency to think, Well, I need I've got an issue. I need a counselor. I don't need a smogger bleeder. Or, I need to go here. I need again, here's a false dichotomy. I think we need both. You know, there are certain there are certain people who I see. I'm like, I don't know if you need to be seeing regular counseling. You need maybe I would tell everybody get involved in a small group, get involved in the local church. Jesus is building his church. so again, there's a there's a false dichotomy, and maybe this is another impact of the slide towards just the therapeutic can come at the expense of the church. Now that being said, there's some there can be some really problematic counseling and counseling doesn't solve everything. So, I think our expectations can either get too high or too low of either the church's role in this or therapy's role. But then, you know, you mentioned what happens if all we do, and tell me if this is the right for the other side of the spectrum, if we just ignore the therapeutic piece and if we ignore, you know, what's the impact it's having in our brain and body and just try to buckle up and fight sin through our willpower. I think if that's where we err, I think ironically, we're minimizing the impact that. Sin has on us; it's affected and impacted us so deeply, especially our willpower, that it's not simply enough to muster up strength and, and cognitive belief to try and be faithful to Jesus and to live out His commands regarding His sexual ethic. You know, we're not these concrete, robotic automatons that can just let me just go about my day. You know, we're flesh and blood; we're finite, and to the degree that we don't understand that. I think is the degree that we're just going to continue to either fall short, or be self-deluded, or just have such an internal civil war that we're gonna we're gonna break. And unfortunately, I hate saying it. It's probably no people who've done that, whether it's high profile or not. So, I think that could be the damage on on the other side.
0: Yeah, it's almost a gnostic approach to sin. It's not it's not mm. really recognizing yeah. our embodiedness and the way that our bodies change and as a result totally. Of
7: pornography use is both a sin and can be an addiction.
0: This is Rebecca Hanna again.
7: And so you you want to address, we can't address that there's a choice being made and evil choices is the heart being made. And at the same time, recognize that there's this neurological piece that, that increasingly makes it easier and easier to return to it. So faith and repentance is absolutely the way forward, but because of habit formation, it's such a big piece to this sin. And so I would say that it's not just one or the other, It's, it's all encompassing in terms of where is this coming from and what do we need to help? And so oftentimes it's a matter of getting to know the person who's struggling, getting to know how they began to struggle with this and, and getting the answer to the, why, what are you looking for? What are you longing for? What are you wanting? So that the answer to the problem is actually distinct to them. Jesus is always the answer. He's always the right answer. He always—we always want him to be at the end of the story, but that doesn't mean that we all get there the same way. And you know, I, I think about Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life. It, God chooses to make Himself known to us, and He chooses a whole lot of different ways for us to experience them. Um, but we know at the end of the day that the presence there is the fullness of joy and the right hand, our pleasures forevermore. And that's true for everybody. But that path looks really different from person to person. It's not so much how we get somewhere. It does matter how we get somewhere, but as long as we end up in a place where we are able to engage in that God honoring beauty, that's what we're looking for. The point is that we are all being sanctified. It's we're being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing and this is part of how he's choosing to do it, but how it affects me is different. But at the end of the day, (laughs) that silver bullet is always going to be Jesus. I just think we want it to look prettier than it does, and we want it to fit in a package so we can fix the problem, which is actually, ironically, exactly what we're trying to do with pornography. We want it to be simple and easy and get what we want when we want it, when in reality, So much of sanctification and so much of struggling with sin, whatever that sin might be, the whole point is the journey with Christ and walking with him and knowing him and pleading with him for help and falling on our knees and asking for help again. And it's that interaction with Jesus that actually grows us and changes us.
0: Blessed are the pure in heart, Jesus tells us, for they shall see God. This purity of heart goes far beyond sexual purity, encompassing the purity of our wills the purity of our aspirations, the purity of our intentions. It's a purity that the early church fathers described as a blazing sun of righteousness, part of the Christian's ascent toward God. It's the polar opposite of the road that leads men and women to descend into ever deeper and more disturbing forms of dark fantasies. In the late 300s, Gregory of Nyssa commented on Jesus' saying, pointing to the future of those who are pure in heart. Now this promise is so great that
2: it transcends the utmost limits of beatitude. For what else could one desire after such a good, since he possesses all things in the one he contemplates? The one who sees God possesses in this act of seeing all there is of the things that are good. By this we understand life without end, eternal incorruption, undying beatitude. With these we shall enjoy the everlasting kingdom of unceasing happiness. We shall see the true light and hear the sweet voice of the Spirit. We shall exult perpetually in all that is good, in the accessible glory."
0: This is the future that awaits the pure in heart, and we can have a taste of that future even now but only if we arm ourselves for battle against the war of sin and lust and shame that would chain us to the darkness. We'll be right back. Prayer is really difficult. And I think most people feel that. I have found that without structure, I don't pray as much. And one of the ways to incorporate some structure into your prayer life is to make sure that you are going into the biblical text in such a way that you are encountering God. And what better place to do this than the Gospels, where you can have a 30-day encounter through the life of Jesus. The pattern for this prayer journey is that it takes you through the life and ministry of Jesus over 30 days, three times a day. You know, when we look back to the Old Testament and to the Psalms, we see this pattern of praying three times a day. It's not unreasonable to think that Jesus and the disciples probably followed something similar. And the point of that is to have you worshiping Jesus in the morning, worshiping him in the evening, and then punctuating your day with a moment where you're thinking about Jesus, you're praying to Jesus in the middle of the day as well. And over time, that shapes us and molds us. When we think about church history, we pray the prayers of those who have gone before us. We are deliberately putting ourselves in that line of prayer warriors, and we are not in that moment necessarily expressing everything that our heart feels. We are expressing to the Lord what we want our heart to feel. To be able to meet Jesus devotionally, to where I'm praying every day, three times a day, seeking to encounter him as I read about him in the Gospels, that's really the beauty of this kind of approach to prayer. That's a famous song from the Christian singer-songwriter Keith Green, who died in a plane crash in 1982. It's based on David's prayer in Psalm 51. It reminds us that the goal is not merely to be free from sin, but to be filled with righteousness. Not merely to avoid temptation, but to embrace God. God did not create
2: you for mediocrity. He did not create you for defeat. God created you for dignity, authority, and historic impact. Not through any kind of grandiosity, but through your integrity.
0: This is Ray Ortland, longtime pastor and author, most recently of a book, The Death of Porn. In the late 1960s through the 70s, my
2: generation said, let's go insane sexually. And so we handed down to your generation a mess. You deserved better. And you don't want to hand on to the next generation more mess. So it's time to turn it around. It's time for the rising generation to see new possibilities, to receive by faith their dignity back, their stature, their magnificence. Including their sexual dignity. And redefine the culture that you're shaping for the future because your children are going to receive something from you and they deserve your best. So, this is my way of saying, um, I'm sorry <laughs> for what we handed down to you, and you can turn this around. You can starve the beast, the porn industry. You can marginalize it, limit it, stigmatize it, push it off to the side where it belongs, and build a new world of integrity, a world of nobility to hand on to my grandchildren, your children. That's worth living for. That's worth sacrificing for. And now is the time.
0: One of my favorite moments in all of literature is in C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. There's a ghostly man on the outskirts of heaven with a lizard of lust on his shoulder, whispering temptations into his ear. The lizard convinces him that he's the one who supplies his happiness. A heavenly being approaches, whose blazing purity sears the man whenever he comes too close. And this angel-like figure tells the ghostly man That the lizard must die if the man is to be free. The ghostly man refuses at first, convinced any operation will kill him too. He sees himself and the lizard as too intertwined for one to live without the other, but eventually he chooses to have the lizard killed. The heavenly being executes the lizard in a few moments, and the ghostly man shrieks in agony, and yet once the deed is done, the man becomes magnificent and the corpse of the lizard is transformed into a stallion. And then, Lewis writes, the man, his face shining with tears, leaps onto the horse's back, and like a shooting star, they ride off into the mountains of heaven, and they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. The lesson, Lewis explains, is this. Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed.
2: And what I'm saying is, you can stop playing defense and you can start playing offense. You can
0: starve the beast. This is Ray Ortlund again, in a TGC talk about pornography and justice. In my own lifetime,
2: I've seen the tobacco industry and smoking cigarettes relocated culturally from suave and sophisticated to marginal and pathetic. Now it's porn's turn. This rich, corrupt, brutal industry, (laughs) it's all a bluff. What they don't want you to know is that you have the power. You have the power. Your noble refusal They have no power before your determination. God has given you that power. Use it. Make the world right where you are safe for honesty, for prayer, for activism, and you will win. And you will enjoy winning.
0: The church is a hospital for sinners but it is also a school for saints, a place where we experience progress on the journey toward the summit of Christ's likeness. The grace of God has appeared, Paul wrote to Titus, bringing salvation and instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts. Jesus came to redeem us and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The Bible sets before us a thrilling vision That is rigorous, seemingly unrealistic, unbending, and otherworldly. But what a reward! The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. This is the joy, the adventure of the hike. It's easy for accountability groups built on the desire to conquer a particular sin to become more focused on the sin being resisted than the righteousness being pursued. Success gets defined as sin resistance, rather than character cultivation. Sin gets the spotlight, holiness stays in the shadows. There's a better way to pursue victory over sin, and it's by shifting focus away from the sins we want to avoid and toward the people we want to become. Who has God called us to be? Victory over temptation comes not because we've got our eyes on the sin that would trip us up, but on the Savior, in whose image we are being remade. In the lifelong fight against lust, we need more than accountability groups that focus primarily on a particular sin being resisted. We need the whole church, victorious and struggling, united not by specific sins and temptations, but by love for Jesus and blessedly starving for righteousness because we trust we will be forever satisfied. We need more than accountability for the struggle of the present moment. We need a glorious vision of the future selves we are becoming. Maybe you've been listening and this episode is personal for you. If the stats are correct, it's more likely than not that you know this sin up close. What if you were to embrace pornography your entire life? What if no one ever finds out? Fast forward 10 or 20 or 30 years, what will be the state of your future self? In cherishing this fleshly desire, you will hollow yourself out from the inside. You will find it harder to be joyful about the things of God. Your senses to God's word will become deadened. Now imagine a different trajectory. With steps forward and back, with a strong sense of God's forgiveness and grace, with ruthless intensity in relying on the Spirit as you seek deliverance from sinful lusts, you will grow into more and more of a warrior committed to the blazing purity of righteousness. You embrace the new identity God has given you. And even if you fall, as the righteous one does, seven times even, we're told in Proverbs, you get back up and the battle goes on. Your future self will not be a shriveled soul limping through the last years of life, but a spiritually robust shining force for righteousness filled with the grace and courage you need to fight sin with every last ounce of your spirit-given energy. Which future do you want? The next time you're tempted, look beyond the sin. Remember who you are in Christ right now. Then look in the time machine of God's word. See your future self and pick up the sword. Deadlands and no escape. For shame still resides in
2: that place. So die before you die,
0: cause there's no chance after. And how will he see your fate? Next time on Reconstructing Faith, we take a closer look at new theories of gender, leading to confusion and controversy in the world and in the church.
7: We can't separate what we're seeing culturally with what we're seeing politically. Those two things are going hand in hand and we're also seeing as these debates spill over into things like women's social spaces, different forms of legislation, the education system and the degree to which parents can have a say in what children are learning. All of these things are the overflow of those ideas. So. Much of what we're trying to correct is not just philosophical, relational, emotional, it is also heavily political. And this is where we need to go back to some Political Theology 101 too and understand what is our right role in society today.
0: Reconstructing Faith is a podcast powered by the North American Mission Board. In an upcoming episode, we plan to respond to comments or questions from listeners. You can participate by giving us feedback at resources at nam.net. That's resources at namb.net. If this podcast is helpful to you, it would be helpful to us if you'd leave a five star review on whatever platform you're listening to and share it with your friends. Reconstructing Faith is written by and Wax. Our show is produced and edited by Scott Slusher. Our sound design is composed, mixed, and mastered by Dan Phelps. Aaron Leslie handles audio editing and engineering. Story editing and consulting is by Amy Simpson. Please check out my book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, Rediscovering the Adventure of Christian Faith. Until next time.